Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. Thoroughly appreciate it. We have a great episode for you today. It is with actor, comedian, writer, director, multi-hyphenate, Elizabeth Zephyrine McDonough. She's done a lot of great things. But first... Thank yous are in order. Thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast and newsletter. And a special thank you to Tamara Brown. We very much appreciate her support of the podcast and everyone's support of the podcast. Creators supporting creators. It's a nice thing. Follow Tamara on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at HeyTamara. That's T-A-M-R-A. You can support too if you want. It's the giving season, as they say. Go to thereitispod.com. And click on support. Okay, on to today's episode. As I mentioned, it's with actress, comedian, writer, and director Elizabeth Zephyrine McDonough, whose birthday happens to be Thursday. A very happy birthday to her. She's worked on Full Frontal and Samantha Bee and currently works at The Daily Show. She also directed a documentary called Still Standing, which follows two stand-up comedians who are in their 80s. The film, which came out in 2021, won the Best Documentary Short Award at the Lower East Side Film Festival. And I get to talk to her about her work at Full Frontal, Daily Show, and more. Here's my chat with Zeph McDonough. So you are from North Carolina. You went to the Durham School of the Arts. So obviously, from a young age, you've been into the arts. And where in North Carolina are you from? Are you from Durham? Yeah, I'm from Durham. Represent the yeah, I went to Durham School of the Arts, which was like an arts magnet. And and yeah, I I think it's still going strong. It is. It is still going strong. And I mean, I I credit myself for that. But yeah, go on. (laughs) Well, I I lived in Raleigh when I was little. I lived in Raleigh until I was 11. Oh, cool. I don't know how close we are in age, but. You know, I don't know that there was any overlap of us. Uh, yeah, we didn't get a chance to hit the same playgrounds. I, I never went to Raleigh. I don't know why. Like Chapel Hill was more of a, a hangout, like Durham Chapel Hill. But I didn't really know folks in Raleigh. I um, loved going to Chapel Hill when I was little in the yeah. 80s. And my brother went to Duke. So. Oh, OK. There may have been some over. He also went to School of Science and Math. So brother oh of God. the show, Trey. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. that's literally like walked my parents house science and math yeah 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 so maybe there's some overlap there i mean i but, definitely probably waited on, i worked at elmo's diner which is like the diner all the duke students go to so i probably served your brother pancakes at some point maybe elmo's <laughs> diner elmo's that, diner like elmo like elmo's diner i don't know elmo's if he actually i don't know if he went there but also i don't know when when did you graduate from the school 2002 Okay, he he graduated in '98 from Duke. So oh, that would have been before my time. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was yeah, really yeah. a child. Just, I yeah. wanted to be earning money, but I wasn't legally permitted to. Yet, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, that explains. <laughs> you also went to Emerson mm-hmm. for your theater studies, and yep. you know, and you also went to graduate school for documentary films at the New School in New York, and you've done a ton. 
you've done so much because you've you've been a contributor to the New Yorker, the Huffington Post, and with the New Yorker also doing video things. And of course, you went on to work at the Rundown with Robin Thede. You worked at the Daily Show. You're working at the Daily Show now. You worked at Sam D. I want to connect a lot of dots here because I also know that you went to the Groundlings in Los Angeles and also you went to Boston University. Yeah, I went to Emerson. I did it my senior year abroad. I participated in this program called Rethinking Globalization, which was mm -hmm. through this thing called the International Honors Program, which was housed at Boston University at the time. So I got like a year of credits that are technically BU credits, but I wasn't in, at BU. I was like in Tanzania. I gotcha. <laughs> okay, okay. So was it after graduate school that you went to Los Angeles? I went to, so right out of college, Paris Whittles, a comedian writer, was my college boyfriend. And, you know, I was in a comedy troupe at Emerson and a bunch of my friends from that scene, everyone was either going to New York or L.A. And like total transparency, I kind of wanted to go to New York because I wanted to go to UCB in New York. We'd done like a weekend workshop there, my college comedy troupe, and I'd been like, this is the bomb. We said the bomb back then. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> and I was like, this is so great. We actually, Chris Gethard was our like teacher for the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. He was so great and so encouraging. And so I had this notion that I wanted to go to New York to do UCB, but Harris really wanted to go to LA. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like agreed to that. And a ton of our other friends were going as well. Like, I mean, it's crazy. The people that were in the comedy troops, like Joe Mandy, Armin Weitzman, Noah Garfinkel, like those guys were all in a group together. Yeah, it's a killer uh, group. Yeah, and we had so many. I mean, a lot of people are still doing comedy, which is really cool. Mookie Blakelock is like was in my oh, wow. group. He's like a great comedic character actor yeah. now out in L.A. So it, it's actually like one of those things where you think like, oh, well, like, sure, we're all doing this now. But how many of us can actually be successful at it? Like, there'll be like maybe one person who continues. The rest of us will get jobs at Quiznos or whatever. Um, uh -huh. but it's cool to see that so many people have like kept with yeah. it and found a way to make it work for sure in big ways too yeah. yeah 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 so anyway so that so yeah that i i literally like i got back from that year abroad i'd been you know in like india africa new zealand all these places for the year and flew back into boston graduated and moved to la two weeks later wow well, i didn't have any savings or any, you know, any plan. It was just like, let's go. Yeah. And so I was out there for a couple of years and ended up moving to New York for graduate school in 2010. Cause I wanted to be, I was like doing the acting thing in LA, kind of doing some comedy, but I was wanting to like make my own video. I was wanting to make my own stuff and kind of hitting a wall with like how hard it seemed to, you know, to just get a video off the ground of like, getting all these people together to shoot this sketch and then like, mm -hmm. oh, we need a camera and how do I edit it? Oh, okay. iMovie. I guess I'll learn that. And it was just like, it, it was, you know, now with phones and everything, obviously it's like incrementally easier, but then it still felt like this big lift. And like, I wanted to learn how to edit properly. I wanted to learn how to like shoot. And so I found out about, and I was really interested in documentary. I had started like doing some sort of just on my own, like interviews of characters I found interesting in LA. Uh -huh. Like there was one girl who was my friend's roommate who dated Fabio. And I did a big interview with her about what it was like dating <laughs> Fabio, you know, that kind of stuff. So I was like, I found out about this 
graduate documentary film program at the new school. That was like a one year crash course in everything documentary. And you made your own documentary over the course of the year, which obviously is the best way to learn how to do something is to just do it. So I was like, okay, this is great. It's one year at the end of it. I'll have a film and I will get to go to New York. And so, yeah, when I got into that, that's what took me back across the country to the East coast. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and, but you did groundlings. Did Yeah. So in LA, I did end up like, I was like fresh off this like year long, like I mentioned, like sort of humanitarian ecological course <laughs> that was all about, you know, like how do we save the world? And I'd been like living with, like the Maasai tribe in Tanzania and like studying like farmers rights in India and stuff. So I was like, I can't be an actor. Like that's so right, right, right. Like I kind of had this little existential crisis that I was like in LA, but feeling like I shouldn't be acting because that doesn't actually help anyone, which I've since changed my belief system around. But at the time, I think I was a little like, what am I doing here? And so I was like working for, I worked for this homeless services nonprofit out there. I worked for a biodiesel company, but all my friends and my boyfriend, like everyone was super into the comedy thing. And so then like very quickly without being too intentional about it, I ended up like people would be like, Hey, can you be in the sketch show? Or I was getting put in shows at UCB and stuff. So then I, I ended up like tiptoeing back into it. And then of course, like, yeah. I, you know, it doesn't take long away from it to be like, I miss that. So I did end up getting back into it, taking some UCB classes and then taking the groundlings classes, which were amazing. And I, I did, I think I did like three, they have maybe four levels of classes there. Anyway, I did the courses there, but I didn't like get to the stage of like auditioning for the company because I left LA, you know, before. Right. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of threads that have connected into where you've been over the last few years, because the fact that you had the focus, like such a serious focus in your studies mm -hmm. uh, of rethinking globalization, some of that had to have played a role in how you approach your your work, like the work you did at Rundown or Sam B and The Daily Show, because it focuses on things like that. Those shows focus okay. on things like that. But then also, because you've been a director at those shows, the study and the focus on that, the interest in that is playing out. And then also the character work, because I know Groundlings is very character focused. And I see so much out of the work that I've seen of yours that it seems very character first. Words, of course, they're, they're different approaches and I'm not saying any one is right or wrong. That's just the focal point of Groundlings is very character based mm -hmm. things. And so I'm seeing so much of your work where you are a character or you have a very distinct comedic voice that shows in your work uh, that seems like a character almost. And that has carried you throughout all of your work because there was there was something I read about a you were interviewed for was it Pix Eleven News as a character or you were you were interviewed as a character for some legit news source. Oh yeah, yeah. No, this is um I'm glad we're touching on this because this is a career highlight. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I had this character, Janice Gunter, Ghost uh -huh. Hunter that was born out of a real woman I interviewed. So in college, I had this, one of the coolest classes I took was called documentary acting. It's like, what's that? Yeah. And it is Anna Devere Smith. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's like a, you know, successful working actor on shows like West Wing and those kind of things. But she okay. 
her, her like background is she's this incredible storyteller who, what she did was she would like interview tons of people around a certain topic. So there's one play she has called twilight Los Angeles, where she, around the Rodney King riots, she interviewed all these different people in LA from different parts of society. And then she transcribes those interviews and creates monologues from them. And the monologue is a direct, it's based on the direct transcript. She's fully like impersonating and embodying this person. And it was, you know, she, she's I think a biracial woman and she's got a look about her that she can really kind of play but she she would play all all races and genders and it like she's got that chameleon like quality where it's very easy for her to morph and be fully believable as each character and yeah so that was really inspiring to me and then that's just to say like her work is is a is a key example of what documentary acting is it's like taking uh, a real person's story and a real character and just like very directly transposing it to a performance how often does documentary acting show up well now it's so funny because i'm like well she talks i've heard interviews with her where she talks about how oh if i was doing it now you know i would just enter i would probably have just become a documentary filmmaker you, you know but it was like the way that she did it initially was interviewing people with audio tapes and then she would do a live stage performance. So it was really okay. like she talks about how it was like the limitations of not having the technology or the maybe budget for film like this. She just did it the way she did it because that was like the most direct way for her to do it, you know, but it's interesting to think about now with like all the politics and changing for sure. and expectations about what you can and can't play, like how that would mm -hmm work oh, right yeah yeah that would work yeah i mean if you're playing someone who is not your race or something that's interesting how that has played i'm sure it'll uh, adjust in a, in a new way moving forward yeah but it's i mean her work is so powerful and amazing and it's i mean there is something that there's an added power and quality to it that she is the same person playing all these different roles right it's creating like a invisible sheath of like commentary on top of whatever she's doing because the actor herself is like this woman of color anyway okay major anna devere smith tangent but i love her and so so for this class one of our assignments is like okay go out and interview someone and then you're going to make a monologue out of the interview so there was this woman who worked at the cvs by my college who was just like i mean the character like I see her behind the register. She's got the huge bottle cap glasses. She's got the kind of downsard head and the kind of like conspiring look in her eye. And I'm just like, what is this woman's deal? Like, I just love her. I was just charmed. <laughs> so I decided I wanted to interview her and I like nervously wait in line at her register. Like, oh, this is weird. Like, is she going to like kind of expecting she'll say no? Because it's like, why is this stranger want to talk to me? Mm -hmm. And I wait, you know, people are buying gum, whatever. And I get up to her register and I'm like, hi, I'm, I'm a student at Emerson. And, you know, I I'd like to interview you and just for a class assignment and just talk to you a little more about yourself and your job. And she's like, no pause at all. She's like, sure. <laughs> and so do you want to do it now? I'm like, yes, ma'am, let's do it now. So we just went to the McDonald's next to CVS when she got off her shift and I interview her. And then of course, like you find when you start doing documentary, any kind of interviewing, if you just like let someone start talking, I mean, the things right. that come out are just <laughs> incredible. So like very quickly we get into like her extrasensory perception, the fact that she's descended from like a long line of psychics, 
you know, her great grandmother lived near Salem where the witch trials happened. So coincidence, I think not her autograph collection. And so I created a series of monologues from that interview. And one of those monologues was about the sort of psychic abilities thing. And that eventually became this character, Janice Gunter, mm-hmm. Gunter, which then we created a web series from. And then when that web series came out, the most rewarding, cool part of it was this crazy publicity we did around it, which involved me basically kind of trying to Andy Kaufman-esque, I guess, like make people think that this character was real or or just not say one way or the other. So I, I did many interviews for press outlets where I, a reporter would call me and I would do the full interview on the phone in character as Janice. And were they in on it? I mean, to varying degrees, like I would say for the most part, they kind of were, but they just would let, they would just play along. Like they would just <laughs> yeah. and nod, like keep asking Janice questions. Cause I think they just really <laughs> enjoyed the answers that Janice would give, you know? And That's the 11 guy, yeah, interviewed me on the news, which was insane as if I was a real woman who was a real ghost hunter. And like, it cuts back to the anchors in the studios. And they're clearly like, what the fuck is Joe doing? <laughs> like, I was actually worried he might get fired. I tried to contact him afterwards. Like, you good? But I think he's... Is he good? Did he get fired? I think he's... Yeah, I think he's fine. <laughs> that also kind of reminds me of Colbert Report because he would conduct interviews with real people and the, they were being themselves, whether they were a public figure or a celebrity or a politician. Yeah. But he was in character the whole time. Yes. And you would get that that look over their eyes, especially early on, where it's like, I don't know what's real right now. I don't know <laughs> how to respond. I guess I'll just go along with this. I guess you got you saw a lot of that kind of glassed over look. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it helps when the character is kind of dumb or just has a naivety about them. Like Janice uh-huh. definitely is as a very naive quality. And I think in that way, it's like, she's not threatening. So mm-hmm. she's kind of like, she's not, it's not like um you're playing a fake character and you're in a position of power. Like you're kind of like the dumb dumb. And they're like, I, I think Ali G like is a brilliant, oh, you know, yeah. brilliant example of that where like, especially early on when people really didn't know it was fake. Like they're just trying to like educate this poor dumb guy. Like, tell him whatever like how the economy works or whatever and like yeah so I think that that helps like when the character is kind of the one who's like totally naive and innocent we also did a flyering campaign around New York City advertising Janice's ghost hunting services with like a number you could call (laughs) and people would call in and leave messages and some of those messages were obviously people kind of like prank calling and having fun with it but we did get some real ones wow like that's my that's like the greatest joy is just like it's so fun when you get to be interacting with the world or people in some way where it's like there's kind of a character and a joke going on but there's also this like unpredictable element of reality happening and yeah that that happened with janice which was really cool that's so cool and it's it's how did you develop being able to do that, to, to be in character with a real life person, but they're not necessarily aware that this is all performance. So how do you keep it going? I imagine it takes a lot of commitment to having a certain vibe hmm. on giving off a certain energy, but also a commitment, obviously, to staying in character. 
Uh, yeah. How did, well, how did you develop easier. that? It was definitely easier to do those press interviews on the phone. <laughs> like if I had to be in person, like for one thing, the glasses I wear as Janice are real thick prescription glasses and I can't see shit through them. So like I'll get a migraine headache after wearing this for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I think it just helps with that the character. It's so easy for me to improvise as her because I just I know the character so deeply. And it, to be clear, like it is no longer the woman I interviewed at CVS. It's like a, right. you know, that was like a nugget that then led to this right. care. But her mannerisms and the way that she speaks are mm-hmm. built off of that real woman. Right. There are a lot of characters like that. Stefan on SNL was yeah. just a barista that Bill Hader saw. And, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And then it just kind of blew up into this other character. It's nothing oh, like the barista. Um, I think that's the, yeah, that's, and that, I think that is something they teach at Groundlings. A lot of the time when you're like making your first characters, they'll be like, give you these exercises that involve like going to someone from your memory that had strong characteristics. characteristics. Yeah. It's a classic tip. For, yeah, for character creation, the, the Garth Dana Carvey's Garth from Wayne's World. Uh-huh. It's like his brother, like his oh brother sort of his brother would hold his face that way. Uh-huh. And that was kind of like the only nugget of truth. I, I, mm-hmm. Like the way the other the sort of things he would say, I don't think it's supposed to be like his brother. It's just yeah. like when they were kids, his brother would kind of talk like that. Like, yeah. like physically, he kind of had that look on his face when he talked. Totally. I think sometimes that's really all you need couple little like hooks to latch into and then you know then you feel like you're off to the races because you have a little bit of like grounding and then you can play in between yeah yeah there was somebody else talking about a character like that i can't remember who it is now but that's a a cool tip for people if they're looking to do character work is to find someone who's very interesting in some way and find that hook right and really really commit to that hook yeah. And just amplify it. Like, even if it's like, oh, uh, a mannerism of like a family friend, and then it's like you exaggerate it times 10, and then it becomes really silly, you know? Yeah. It's also, I, you know, it's, it's hard, I feel like, when the mannerisms are more subtle, but people do it. I, I mean, I mentioned Colbert, Colbert Report character. The, there's some subtleties that he's doing. He's not doing something as, as specific as like, Bill Hader is Stefan. He's not doing yeah. anything like that. He's it's all energy based, the character. And mm-hmm. that's that seems like it'd be really hard to do, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it's funny because I feel like people like this is like a, a, rem- a reminder I've learned over and over again is like sometimes it's when a sketch character seems too big, it's like, oh, that person is like, that person would never exist in real life. Like that's so over the top. <laughs> you just walk down the street of New York and you're like, no, there is no character that is too big. Like in real life, true, these people truly. exist fully like, and so I think that it can be like the documentary acting idea or taking inspiration from real life. Like that can be like a good reminder of just like, this is not an over the top character. This is. Yeah. <laughs> this I saw someone. Absolutely. I saw someone yesterday on the train and she had a pearl necklace on and a black dress. So she was dressed nicely, mm-hmm. but she was sitting very awkwardly kind of doing what they call a man spread even. Uh-huh. And the way she had her feet on the ground was peculiar. And then she was on her phone 
And even just the way she scrolled was very big. And the look on her face, she was on her phone thinking so hard that her lips were like poking out very hard. It was like, like really <laughs> scrunched up face with the, with the, the whole time, the whole time. And she would yeah. adjust and, and move. And I was like, is anyone else seeing this? Like, yes, yes. And that's like, that was another like exercise we would do for that class is just going out in the world and kind of like following. So it sounds creepy, but like following someone walking and taking on their walk or like in that example, you would observe that woman and then just copy what she's doing. And as soon as you start embodying those traits, you're like, this is crazy. I can't believe <laughs> someone's living in this shape all the time. But it just physically getting it in it, it starts to affect your mindset and like how you're talking, you know? Yeah, it's a really good, really good way to to get into character. Yeah. To think about those, in some cases, subtleties, but in, in the case of what I saw at the train, they really stood out to me at least. So you, as I mentioned, you've done some kind con- you've contributed to the New Yorker, the Huffington Post. How did... How did you parlay writing into your overall career, to your work? Yeah, I mean, I feel like everything that I've done that's then like led to some, I've just, just do it, basically. I just started doing it and then trying to, tried to find a way to get it out in the world, if that makes sense. So like Uh with the writing, Huffington Post was, oh, I love writing and, and I was, definitely interested in figuring out a way to like get my writing out to more of an audience and I was going to France for a couple months to live with I have an aunt and uncle there and I was going to go be living with them for a couple months and I had a friend who worked at Huffington Post and I I saw that they had all these travel writers and I was like I contacted him to see like is that something I could do and then I think I like sent them a piece and then they were like cool this is good we'll put it up and it was like oh wow Amazing. Okay. So now I can just write stuff and it'll be on the internet. I mean, it, it was like a very, like rather low bar to entry and it was having to post. I don't think it has this model anymore, but you know, it used to be this like contributor, anyone, mm-hmm. not anyone, but I think, you know, it was yeah. much to contribute. And then for the New Yorker, I made some videos that were accepted there. And so that kind of put me in contact with their comedy people And so then when I started having comedy essays I'd written, I had a contact there that I could submit to and then, you know, got one in and then got another in, you know, that's not a, like, you're going to get rejected there sometimes. I mean, for sure. It's like, also, I think one good thing to keep in mind with like the online comedy publishing scene is like just not having... I started to learn about other outlets like, oh, okay, it got rejected by New Yorker. It got rejected by McSweeney's. What are some other places that are publishing comedy and might also be interested in this? And so then I realized like, oh, I don't need to take no for an answer the first time. I can try another place, another place. And then like, you know, there's this thing, little old lady comedy that the stand-up Mary Sella, I think it's Mary Sella runs. And I found out about that. And then they published an essay of mine that didn't get into the marker. And I was so glad that I didn't just let it die because, you know, there's nothing right. that sucks more than making something and then just having it, no one see it, like yeah. having it have no life. And that's right. why I, in general, I've like aired on the side of like short, shorter form content, more DIY stuff, because I always just want to make something and get it out there. Like, I don't want to wait for someone to like 
give me funding. Right. Which has its pluses and minuses. Like there's definitely. But for sure. And maybe I should get someone to give me funding at this point. (laughs) That's a really encouraging thought because I, I know that, you know, when it comes to McSweeney's, it can be kind of hard to get accepted by McSweeney's and they probably, it's, it's just very competitive. Yeah. I mean, I know something in there. I mean, which is wild to me, but I have, uh, that's something we share because I have also never, but I also haven't tried, but once or twice. Yes. Yeah. And we did, it was me and a buddy came up with something and, and submitted it and it didn't get accepted. And then we just were like, oh, okay, well, that's it. But yeah, we could have tried other places. Who knows where it would have, yeah. where it could have landed at that point. And then, you're, you know, you could say you're published after that. Yeah. So, or even you know. doing like now that people, there's like that medium and stuff like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's a good, you know, last tier is like, okay, if no one's accepted it, is there a way you could just put it online yourself so that right. maybe your mom will read it? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's this, in this day and age, there are so many opportunities and there's no reason not to try all of them. You know, like you don't have to just try one and, and it's not, you know, I don't even mean it's this or bust sort of mentality. Obviously that's not a great mentality, but I just mean, like with McSweeney's, it wasn't that we were, oh, it's McSweeney's or bust. We just mm-hmm. didn't really know that we could submit comedy to anything else. At the yeah, time. totally. <laughs> so we didn't. And yeah. you can't. Like if anyone listening is like, well, I submitted this thing to McSweeney's last week and didn't get it. Try something else. <laughs> like <laughs> That's a really, really great idea. Yeah. Um, so that's cool that you, you were doing that work. And at some point around 2017, is when you start working at the rundown with Robin Thede. Hmm. How did that come about? So that I do feel like it's like the work begets work thing and just like, just keep making stuff. So like when that opportunity came along, the reason I got that job was a good opportunity combined with I, that I had a body of work because I just kept making videos. So I had worked for this agency called purpose doing like social issues campaigns that ended up being a lot of kind of like short form doc stuff. Like I did some stuff about the white helmets, these Syrian civil defenders that they ended up making a documentary short about that won the Oscar called the white helmets that Mm -hmm. started as like a campaign at purpose. I mean, the coverage of them started as a campaign at purpose. And I, so I had videos that I'd produced with them in Turkey. And then I had like other doc stuff I'd done for purpose. And then I had my own sketches that I'd done, some of which had gotten into the New Yorker, some of which I just put on YouTube, but like had gotten some traction in some cases. And I was out of work. I was like doing the freelance thing forever. And it was like one of those dry periods where it was like, okay, it's been a couple months and where's money? And so I had a friend like, all the job, I feel like every job that I've had other than like working in bars and restaurants, like any job in like the biz that I've gotten in the past since being in New York has been from people I know. Like it's been, a, you know what I mean? Whether that means someone I worked with before refers me for something else, or I have a friend who's like, oh, here's this is something you could submit to. You know what I mean? I can't imagine just like sending my resume in to like, I don't know, a garbage pile is what I picture. I just don't know how anyone ever gets a job that way. So God, my hat goes off to you if you have. I feel like the only way to really get jobs is through 
just continuing to like make connections and put your work out there. That's what I keep hearing. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who's been on the podcast before has said all the jobs that they've gotten here, they got because they knew someone. Working. Yeah. And it's like, it's not like, oh, you know, someone because you're like, I mean, maybe you went to high school with them, but it's like, you know, someone because you're doing stand up and you're putting yourself out there being at mics and then you right. meet this other comedian or, you know, someone because yeah, you submitted to their, what, you know, it's like being proactive, but like, anyway, so my friend, Julia, who was in my grad program with me at the new school, I just like, I just like reached out to a couple of friends. Like, does anyone know of anything? And Julia had just interviewed for this job with the rundown and they'd actually really liked her, but she was too daunted by the comedy thing. Cause she doesn't have a comedy background. She just had more of the doc background. And she was like, they basically offered her the job. And she was like, I, can't do it. I'm too nervous. But she was like, you would be perfect. So she recommended oh, wow. me. And then I went in and interviewed. And then I had a second interview with Robin. And then I got hired. And and I got hired. You know, I got I had the recommendation that got the foot in the door. But then I had all this material of stuff that I'd made that was like what they were looking for for the show. So that was right. the way that I got my first like TV job. Yeah. And you were your primary focus on there were like cold opens and and segments yeah it was sketches field segments which were like comedic documentaries uh -huh. and cold opens and were you from your perspective there were you coming up with the ideas and writing them and producing them or were you working with you know the writers on producing that stuff or kind of all of the above like just yeah do everything yeah it's very collaborative but it's also very self structured in the sense like we would we would pitch our own pieces so if i was doing a field piece that was more documentary based that would be typically something i would pitch if it got approved i would create you know create the whole thing find my characters write the outline you i might have a meeting at some point with other folks on the show like either people in the field department or writers to be like hey let's pitch jokes on like how can we make this piece funnier which is always the best. Like any stage of like collaboration you can get is going to make the piece funnier and better. So definitely like no one is making a piece completely by themselves in that sense. Thank God, because the pieces would suck, but it, it just makes it better to have other people's ideas included. So yeah, we would have like a joke meeting, but yeah, ultimately you are writing and structuring and directing and producing the whole thing. What was unique at the rundown, which I didn't experience on shows after that was like Robin, I think because she comes from a writing background. She was very she was a little bit like more of a stickler about the writing part in the sense that just one. I feel like a rule was that like for the voiceover and the pieces, we would always work with a writer to oh. to like punch that up so that like the voiceover had quote been written by a writer right but there's so much writing that goes on that's not just the voiceover like you're writing all the questions you're structuring the whole piece right. but no other show that i've worked on since has had that rule like you do get joke pitches from the writers and writers can punch up your scripts but like you're doing a lot of writing as a segment producer or director um which is kind of it's a bit of a sore subject in the late night biz because you know, understandably, field producers have been kind of annoyed that they don't get a writing credit because oh, they usually yeah, write right a whole act for the show. Right. And we say that the, you know, the writers wrote it because they like pitched in a meeting or something. But 
It depends on the show, but like yeah, and, and what part of the television industry it is, because I know yeah. with like a sketch show, everyone's name is getting on there, but a sitcom, it's whoever came up with the story, and even that can be kind of yeah, odd. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I think yeah. that like this is a niche weird thing in the late night world, and depending on which late night show you're on, it right. may differently. Like some late night show, it may be the writers may contribute a lot more to the writing of the piece and other shows may be less. Um, but regardless, in my experience, the field producer is always doing a ton of writing, even if it's collaborative and hopefully it is collaborative because the writers are always right. fun adding great stuff, but it's, it's odd to not get a writing credit when you're writing. And then I think the real rub for people has been like, awards because that's what I was just about to ask show wins a writing award they will for example full frontal with Samantha B if they submitted an episode and that episode wins an Emmy that episode was four acts one of the acts was a field piece that someone in the field department was essentially the head writer on I mean they mm -hmm collaborated with writers on the show and other people in the field department but they they, but were, they were in charge of the of what you know everything you know yeah, how, and they it, probably how it came together wrote, verbatim they probably wrote a lot of what was said in the piece like right. and they don't get that award yeah you know, they don't get that emmy and so there's not really a category that field producers are even eligible for yeah like so there's the creative emmy night which they don't show on air live Mm. none of those even are where the because that's why i was wondering is that where the field producers would fall into from what i from what i know i think that the only way someone who's in the role that i've played on these shows which is segment director slash field producer the only way that that role could win an emmy is if you directed a special so sometimes these shows have specials. Yeah, yeah, the like, election um, night special. Yeah, yeah. And if you direct, like the crediting for that is maybe a little different. So like I know on Sam B, they did like a Puerto Rico special. Mm -hmm. And I think that might have won some awards. And the segment directors were able to be included in that award because of direct. But anyway, this is like very in the weeds, but I, I yeah, sure I but to sound like I'm complaining, but it, I do think it's. But it's, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I know it doesn't okay. sound like. It doesn't sound like you're complaining about the shows. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you're pointing out a, a bone of contention that many people have with just the way it's titled and structured. Basically. Yes. And yeah. I think like the reason that's been given to me is essentially the writers like, guild. Yeah. They don't want to have to put more people in the pay more people as writers guild members. It's like a right. And I'm also like, I mean, if my choice is like getting to secretly write a lot of comedy for the show and not be properly credited for it or not getting to write a lot of comedy <laughs> and like being credited right. for it, well, I'll choose the first one. Like, you know, I, I prefer getting to write the comedy whether or not I get credit for it. Right. I don't want them to be like, OK, our solution is we're going to crack down on this and make sure no segment directors are writing. It's like, oh, that's, <laughs> right. that's hard. That's, yeah. Uh, and I guess how many I'm sure this varies show to show. But how many segment producers or field directors are there per show, roughly? Yeah, that totally varies. But I think like, I don't know, five. Are, we have quite a few on The Daily Show right now. But um, I think on Full Frontal, it was like five or six at any given time. Okay. Would a show like Late Show or Tonight Show have yeah. 
more or the same amount? I think about the same. I think Col- I think Stephen Colbert's show, they might have four or five. Okay. And it's a lot of directing sketches too. So like in that case, mm. you're directing a sketch that a writer wrote. You're not writing those sketches. But you might get to pitch ideas on them or even add jokes, you know, so. Okay. I named specific shows, but they may not work the way you're discussing. So it's, yeah. I, I maybe should not have named specific Well, right. Shows. Like, I think, like, I think on Colbert, there's, a, like, I know some of the people who work in the as segment directors on that show. One of my friends in that role, like, I think he directs mostly sketches. Like, he's not doing field pieces the way we do on our show. I don't think that uh-huh. where there are more developed documentaries mm-hmm. with comedic elements. Yeah, that's very, it's very interesting. I guess the fix, one fix would be if they are directing a field piece, they don't write it and just the writer writes it. Yeah, but I hate that fix. I don't but, Right. Do that. that would, that <laughs> wouldn't satisfy anybody, but it would. Yeah. It and the writers don't want to do that. Like, they're right, like, right. you don't want to write your damn field piece. We're exactly. part of the show. And then the other fix, maybe to some of that issue, would just be, well, if you have 14 writers, the next amount will be they're solely focused on field pieces. And then these would be mm-hmm. solely focused on this or that. But they kind of need the 14 that they have to do what they currently have them yeah. do. While the field producers and field directors work the way that has been working so it nothing is a perfect fix i guess unless you just add more people to your yeah, writing staff. you know i think for me i'm like what would i want it would be nice if when we had a segment air that was a field piece that we not a sketch but like a field piece that we were credited as a writer on that episode Mm-hmm. But not need not necessarily. Maybe we're not list. We're not a staff writer. But when we have a piece that airs, we would be included in the writing credits. That would be nice. Yeah, the union but, is probably yeah. the main reason. Damn unions! <laughs> I'm like, thank God for the directors' like, union. Love it. I know, right? Yeah, maybe they just need a new category too to address that. Or, or, or this is another fix. It's maybe the easiest fix. Yeah. Just make more Emmys. And when an episode you worked Thank on, you. Yes. just give you an Emmy. Exactly. That's that's <laughs> you worked on an episode that people that voted for. Takeaway of this entire episode, give me an Emmy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just gonna refer to you as Emmy winning just on principle of yeah. you've done Emmy worthy work. It's my middle name, Emmy winning. <laughs> oh, I thought it was gonna be principal. Yeah. I I mean it's it's a funny situation, but <laughs> yes, it is. The thing that I actually my true like grievance is just that people don't understand what our yeah. job is. Like I'm, right. I envy the writers because they can just say that I'm, I'm a writer and people know what that means. Right. And so when people are like, oh, you're a field producer, they're like, so you produce pieces in a field like <laughs> Meanwhile, it's actually like one of the most all-encompassing roles. You're, you're directing, you're producing, and you're writing. But then it's right. like having to give a whole spiel to explain what my job is. <laughs> yep. You mentioned Samantha B and Daily Show. You were working at Samantha B for a couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. Then it unfortunately was canceled. You are now working at The Daily Show, and you've been there about a year or so, right? Yeah, a little over a year. Right. And... I would imagine that has like like one of the big things on that show are the field pieces. Yeah. Those segments where someone is going out of studio. Was there much of a an adjustment you had to make 
going to a show like that or i feel like samantha b's show was similar enough in in structure that probably not right yeah that's what i was doing at sam b that was was the field pieces and i mean the thing about sam b is she came from the daily show right her staff her like <laughs> right. skeletal staff came from the daily show so they were all like actually someone put it to me recently that it was like they felt like sam b took they took a lot of what was working about the daily show and then also things they'd learned of oh we can improve on this we can improve on this and so i think i really saw that they're like i do think that the show was very collaborative samantha b like the way that we collaborated on field pieces was a little more it's a little bit more independent on the daily show in terms of the way that you make a field piece which has its pros and cons but but yeah it's it's the same same gig just a few more correspondents right and also of course i'm doing the like post zoom or post pandemic slash eternal pandemic (laughs) version of of the job so like i don't know how i'm sure the show was different before the pandemic and then it was fully on zoom and now we've come out of that world but like it's still a little i think more siloed than it probably used to be right right with daily show since there's so many correspondents and different correspondents do you get sort of do they pair segment producers with writers and correspondent and that's the one you always work with or is it just whatever they need that week or day yeah it's whatever they they tell you to do i mean when you're pitching stuff like depending on the pitch it might be one that you're like any correspondent could do this and then you'll just say correspondent in the pitch but like a lot of times people shape a pitch around a particular correspondent because they'll be like oh this story would be so good for ronnie's voice or whatever so right right so that'll be included in the pitch itself and then if it gets approved that correspondent will probably do it unless for some reason they can't and they're like oh this piece could actually work with roy just as well so like let's have roy do it or whatever yeah and i do think like that's it's great to get to work with all the different correspondents because like in a way you like writing for a show, I mean, you're learning to write for these different voices. It's like right. oh, Desi's lens for a piece is going to be different than Roy's lens. And like kind of working those muscles to like get each person's voice is like a fun experience. Yeah, that's an interesting point because, you know, one of the things with a show like Daily Show that has these correspondents or SNL, which mm-hmm. has a lot of different cast members and then writers and people pitching ideas certain performers might be really the only one you can go for certain ideas mm-hmm. and of course when we're trying to get as many people on on the show on uh, get their face on camera you would have to adjust if the idea you had wasn't going to work the way you originally pitched it you would have to be able to work with these other people and and learn their voice and and try to adjust to their voice what is that experience like? Like if you have an idea and originally you were going to have like Dulce on it, but then because of something she couldn't do it. So then you have to switch it to someone with a very different voice, hmm. but it's the same piece, hmm. it's the same segment. It's the same general idea. How, what sort of adjustments do you have to make to make that work? I mean, I think it depends on the piece because I do think there's some pieces that that can work with. And then there's some pieces where you'll just say, oh, well, we're going to not do this or we're going to wait until Roy's available. Because that's the thing. You're When you're pitching, you're pitching a story and then you're pitching a take on that story. Like what's the uh, comedic lens that we're looking at this through? And usually that's going to be 
often that will be correspondent dependent. Like often the take is shaped around, well, Ronnie would feel this way about this business. So here's why it's funny. But like if you try to put that lens on another correspondent, it doesn't like hit as hard. So right. um, you might just say, let's wait, wait till Ronnie's available or depending, you might be like, oh, you know what? Dulce could kind of play that game too. So let's try her, you know? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you see the industry going? I feel like for a few years, people are like, oh, well, I don't know if these late night shows will ever exist anymore. And then <laughs> the pandemic happened and I and maybe it that changed people's interest in these shows because they had more time to watch them. But to me, it doesn't seem like they're going anywhere. Was that a thing? I missed that. So pre-pandemic, people were saying that late night shows might be. There in- were some people who like a couple of people worked in late night who either said, I don't know, this this whole thing might change. Industry seems to be changing. I heard years and years ago, it was like, oh, they won't have so many writers. Of course, like that continued to be the same. But where do you see the industry going? It seems like with how easy it is to take pieces and put them online and then they have this bigger life. It seems like, well, why would they get rid of, of these shows then? You know, like seems like a whole other stream of revenue for them. Yeah, well, I do think that the reason the shows have stayed relevant and popular, if assuming I have, I don't know, I'm not looking at the numbers, but I still have a job. So I guess <laughs> I think is like they have had to pivot. Definitely them being on YouTube is essential. Like I'm like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's where a lot of people watch our show is just the YouTube clips. Mm-hmm. And then I know like Daily Show has a whole branch of the staff that's doing like expansion that's basically doing all the content on like social twitter instagram tiktok and like that probably i assume we're paying a bunch of people to do that so i assume that's an important (laughs) part of what we're doing so like i think the shows have just had to like as long as they're still able to like disseminate into like all of the platforms then they make sense i do think that people especially now I do feel like people want to know what's going on and like hear the news, but they need it in like a digestible fun, not like, Oh my God, this is happening. Like, you know, (laughs) they want to like be informed while like having someone kind of like keep them entertained and like feel like there's some like humanity to it. And so I definitely like found myself turning to like the late night monologues of these various middle-aged white men in a way I wasn't <laughs> expecting during the <laughs> what's Kimmel saying? Like I just I wanted to there is like a touchstone quality of just like that knowing these shows are there to be like, what is this person saying about that? You know? Mm-hmm. And I will say I think that that has been a massive hole in what's happened with like a women's rights, uh, pregnant people's rights, like the abortion situation this summer, I was like, Sam B got canceled basically that week. And I was just like, where is my voice to turn to right now? Like I was really feeling yeah. absence of female voice as late night hosts hosts in that moment. Cause I feel like I do kind of find myself turning to some of those hosts when I want to like, when, it, when something big is happening and mm-hmm. I really felt it absence there and unfortunately has not been fixed you mean james corden isn't covering (laughs) hey get james corden in a car and turn up the jams let's see what he has to sing about this yeah so you know 
that was tough. I know Chelsea Handler did like a guest host, I think, of Kimmel on right, yeah. It happened, which was good to see. But it was like you kind of are like looking for these. There's like a sense of like, I don't know, community or just like right. yeah, yeah, yeah. consistency that you find it's in the consistency, hosts. right. Yeah. Like right. I definitely feel that with like public radio hosts, you know, where it's like, okay, right. what's Brian Lair saying? You know, like and so right, right. You really could have that with Sam B because she was weekly. I, I yeah, weekly. I forget yeah. if with that show, if there were breaks in between seasons. Were there? Yeah, we I mean, we had some hiatuses on the show, but I don't think there was a long there was, break. Yeah, it's not like not more than daily show. No. But I believe with Right now, the only woman to host a topical late night show is Amber Ruffin. And yeah. I think there is a bigger gap between seasons for her. Uh -huh. And so it's she is kind of the first option that you could think of. But if it's during that time that she's not on, then you can't exactly. turn to her. And then when yeah. it's like, well, Chelsea Handler's guesting for a couple of days this week on Kimmel, that's still few and far between. Like, you can't expect that. Yeah. But when it's someone who's on every night, yeah, you get used to it. Right. And also, like, wouldn't it be nice if, like, you know, Amber has her own flavor of her show and the kind of fun variety nature of it. And like in the like white male late night hosts, there's like a spectrum of like flavor. You know, it's like Jimmy, like it's like Colbert is different than Jimmy Fallon. You know, you're not yeah. necessarily going to turn to Jimmy Fallon for the same and wouldn't it be nice if we had <laughs> enough women and like people of color and diversity in these late night hosts that there could actually be like, you know, maybe one female host is like more this you turn to for this kind of reaction. And this is where you go when you're looking, you know, like, but right. now we're just lucky to lucky, quote unquote, to even have one. And like you said, right, right. It's not going to be on every night. And, you know, right. yeah, it, it just. I feel like no one's really had the trust to give that role to a woman in a real consistent way, like in right. a committed way of like, we're putting this woman at the front of this enterprise and we're sticking with her there for like any decent, like a actual substantial period of time, like a season. Right, right. We'll like, a like Michelle Wolf, let's throw her up for six episodes and then burn her to the ground or, you know, on this streaming network, like, right. you know, it's not a it's not something that people can get without shelling out money. Yeah, really. it's about like networks being willing to like financially back a ship that has a woman actually at the head of it. And yeah, I think we've really seen that. I mean, yeah. Sam is probably the closest. Uh, yeah, she's the closest. She but... was the closest since it was every night on NBC. Liz oh, you're talking about Lily Singh. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Listening, yes, that's true, but that was so late. <laughs> it was it was late, and she also had gaps in between seasons, I believe. Yes. When she got two seasons. And also, I don't know that she, you know, Sam B, John Oliver, Seth Myers, Daily Show, Colbert, Kimmel, they all intentionally address political things and national discussions in a yeah. very straightforward way. Uh, and in breaking it down, of course, now John John Seward is back and doing it as well. Right. We also have now Amber Ruffin doing it as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe there'll be an opportunity with Daily Show since they did have a person of color who mm -hmm. was providing a voice. Mm -hmm. And now that the transition into a new host next year, 
and uh, which is uh, you're there at an exciting time. Yeah. How does that transition look? I mean, I, obviously great, you great can't question. say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just from where you are, they don't change everyone working there, right? That's right. I mean, yeah, that's what we've been told. As far as I know, it's kind of like the idea. That's how it worked last time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean. TBD, my friend. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, no one. I do not have answers for you. Yeah, no, I don't expect the. Even if you had heard some rumblings of who they were going to ask for you to, I wasn't expecting you to share yeah. it. But yeah. I am. I was, you know, since you're there now, I was curious as to what the day to day even looks like. But I, I imagine they're probably not trying to shake things up. On the day to day, yeah. they they still got to put the show out. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, we, that is the funny thing about going from a show that was weekly to a show that's daily because you're. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, the show doesn't stop. Like, thank God we don't have to do a show on Fridays. But like, it's been interesting to just be like, you know, even coming from a show where it was like I would watch every episode. I would know, like on Full Frontal, I would know what was going to be on the show that week. I would watch every show. I would know who had worked on what pieces to like, we're just like, you know, we're turning out four <laughs> shows a week. So it's like, it was funny because when I started, I thought like, oh, I'll watch every show. And then it was just like, that's it. no way. <laughs> and so, yeah, the show must go on, as you said, like it's it's like even when that announcement came out, it was like, OK, and we will still be making our shows starting now. Right. So, yeah, it's. I think that a lot of the people who work there have worked there for a long time. Mm -hmm. They're used to that idea of like, because there are people that have worked there. There are some people who have worked there since Greg Kilborn. Really? Very, the very beginning. But there are, they do exist. And then there are people, there are definitely a number of people who've worked there since John and, and saw that transition. And so like, I do think there's a degree to which it's a machine, right? People have been doing it for a while and they can kind of like, you know, keep doing their part of the machine. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I definitely think everyone is like curious about what's going to happen, but I don't have any answers yet. If only Janice were here to psychically predict for, <laughs> but I don't have the glasses. When, how, since you were going from a weekly show to a daily show or four four days a week show, I'm curious on the pitching end for you, what yeah. the change was. Were you pitching a bunch of ideas for Sam B and then they would just take one for that week? And so you had a bunch of ideas that just, you know, you were like, all right, don't have to worry about these. And now it's like more of those ideas are getting picked because they're multiple days. Or do you have to come up with four times the amount of ideas each week than you did before? I feel like the bar at CMB was very high because we were only doing one field piece a week. It was like there were a lot of boxes that needed the every piece needed to check or it wasn't going to go through. And even then, once you shot it and were in edit, it was like it needs to be funnier. It needs to have this, you know. There was a lot of out there, I think, because we had we were only getting to do so many. We were a little more precious about them. On The Daily Show, there's more quick turnaround pieces. There's more like 
there's more variety of like what a field piece might look like. Like some of the pieces might be more of that Sambia variety where they're like very considered and like nurtured and developed and all this stuff. And then there might, a field piece might be like, let's hit the streets and just ask people this question, you know? So, so I don't think that I, because of that, like, I, I don't think that I have to pitch more, like we had to pitch a ton. We had to pitch a ton at Sambi because they were super selective about what they picked. And we kind of, now we pitch and there's just, there's more slots, but then there's also an element of like, sometimes we're doing pieces that the writers like we're doing sketches or we're getting pieces handed to us to direct. Oh so, yeah. 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 I feel like the pitching is kind of similar. Similar. Kind of, and then yeah. what's different is because the amount of people who are, who are working on the show. Yeah. And they're just it's a bigger machine. So like, I don't right. know what might like on Sam B I knew what everyone was working on all the time. Like right. I don't know what people are working on all the time in my department. Like, I have to like be very deliberate if I want to like find that out. Cause if wow. I, I mean, I just, uh, we're not as involved in each other's pieces. So yeah, no, like, no, it's just, I, I only say wow, because I'm seeing how big of a machine that must be. Uh, yeah. There's just a lot of moving uh, yeah. parts. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's the big machines like that and SNL and any mm -hmm. of the 1130 shows, but even probably 1230 shows. I think I would imagine Daily Show and the 12, at least the 1230 shows are very similar since they're like Seth Meyers is four days a week, just like Daily Show. Yeah. And I think like these shows can run as efficiently or inefficiently as they want to. <laughs> like, I think I think that the Daily Show ha has figured out a way to like do the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. They've been around 25 ish years. Yeah. And so like, I'm sometimes shocked, like, how are we getting a show on tonight? Oh, there it is. And, but yeah, I think other late night shows, I think there's probably an array of like how chaotic or not things are. And that probably varies. Right. I feel lucky that I feel like our show is pretty tends to be not feeling like we're doing a ton of unnecessary work, if that makes sense. Like I right. think sometimes when things are really chaotic, people can get sent off. Like you're getting asked to like, just keep churning out work that then doesn't even, you know, like go anywhere. And I think that I feel lucky that I think that most of what we do ends up on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually. Sometimes it Eventually. takes a while. Sometimes there's a delay and you're like, oh shit, the correspondent's wearing gloves in this piece and it's July now. But, <laughs> you know, our audiences are willing to be a little patient with that. So or we just assume we just assume they were in a cold place. It was just cold that way. Right. Or they're just like a hypochondriac and they <laughs> don't. <laughs> well, I could talk to you forever, but I probably should. <laughs> You have things to do. I didn't even get to mention Eleanor or Tally, previous guests of the podcast. I mean, that's partly how I found out about you is because Eleanor posted some bit that you two were goofing around doing at a restaurant where you're just hanging out. Oh, that's what I was curious. I didn't know if you saw my documentary or what you saw. You saw Eleanor. <laughs> I saw a random thing that Eleanor Pianta posted on Instagram. And I think it was an Instagram story even, uh -huh. so not even something on the grid that people can go check out where she was goofing around pretending to be a sommelier. Oh, yes. The sommelier. Yeah. yeah. And it said directed by you. And I said, oh, who is this? <laughs> so 
So I looked at your profile and was like, oh, she's hilarious. I should ask her to be on the podcast. Oh, <laughs> my God. I love that. I love that. the We called that the the sommelier. Uh, I love the, the sommelier, which was just basically us fucking around on Eleanor's birthday. Yeah. I love that that led, led us to each other. That's hilarious. It I, is. It's literally, yeah. See, you never know. You just got to keep making videos because <laughs> as it turns out, the documentary that I made is not how you found out about me. It but it's is- how I found out about the documentary, you know, okay. and how I'm going to, you know, how I can now exactly. see all of this work. Well, I mean, I, I saw some of your work without realizing because of things that you had worked on previously. Yes. But I just mean, I didn't know about you specifically. Course, yeah. Uh, and the connection to any of the work I saw. Oh my but God. yeah, and we like the documentary and there's so much we could have talked about. People must go to your website and and check out your work. You have a lot of things on there that people can see of different mediums because you also act. I also noticed, how long have you known Eleanor? We went to Emerson together. And okay, that's what I was really thinking. Yeah. Like, we, that's kind of, because, like, I went abroad that senior year. Like, we had a lot of friends in common, but Eleanor and Sunitha and Tally, mm-hmm. and I kind of, like, crossed lightly in college, but then I really reconnected with them when I lived in L.A., and they were, like, out visiting, and we oh. met at a party. And we had, like, known each other a little, but not too much, and we just, like, had a had a damn blast that night and the rest is history and now you know there's someone like i feel like there's a comedic vibe that you and eleanor share there was something when i see some of the when i saw some of the videos i was like they could be sisters just going by their vibe oh my god i love that you're saying that we this has been a long-standing joke i mean people have said this to us for a long time that we like remind each other of each other and i've been wanting to do a film where we play sisters forever and I just haven't gotten my shit together but I'm flattered to hear that I consider it a huge compliment and I'm sorry if Eleanor doesn't I'm sure she does too sure (laughs) well let's create something together I feel like a good thing to sort of demonstrate to the audience is how a field piece for the daily show would get put together and obviously there's a pitch stage and then there's making it so first question in pitching how much do you pitch and i i ask partly because i've heard some stories of like a head writer just rattling off list the ideas off of a sheet until the host goes like yeah let's do that is it sort of like that where you're pitching a bunch of things at once and then producers say yes that or are you saying well this is my best idea how does that go the pitch Yeah, I think that the pitches used to be a lot more like live in the room, but because the show's become more hybrid remote, it's more like writing based. So you'll submit a pitch in writing to an email that everyone on the show gets so everyone can see your pitch. And ultimately, like people who run the field department will sign off on their favorites. And then like the showrunner and head writers will approve certain pitches. Okay, that's the way it's done. I mean, sometimes in the room, like in our field meetings, you might have seen a news story or have like a nugget of an idea that you want to bring up because you think there's something there, but you're not quite sure what it is. And so you kind of softball it to the room and maybe our boss or other people might react and be like, Oh yeah, just add jokes on it, or maybe the maybe our our boss will be like, 
I don't, I feel like that could only work if we find like the right character for it, or you'll get oh, something yeah. back that could then help you decide, do I want to write this up or not? And if I do like, what does it need kind of thing? So the impetus for the idea comes from what's going on in the world. What yeah. you're about I mean, in the news and. Yeah, totally. I think like different people work differently, but yes, generally speaking, like you're finding something in the world that like strikes a chord and you're like, that feels like a piece to me. For me, a lot of times it it's more like not through osmosis, but maybe there'll be some issue or something that's kind of like, I almost have the idea before I've like, I'm not always necessarily reacting to a specific article or something, but like, I'm like, I feel like there's something about, you know, people not being educated about female reproductive organs. Like no one even knows like what the vulva versus the vagina is because we don't teach this. To, and then like, is there something there where we could like do a man on the street piece? And you know, that would highlight how ignorant we all are. <laughs> and is there a larger news story to frame this in? Like, and then maybe you start doing some research and you're like, Oh, Oh, this is interesting. Texas just like slashed their sex ed budget for public education. And now it's, you know, and oh, so wow. then maybe that's a, I mean, this is hypothetical, but like, right, maybe right. that's a place to put this is like, let's make the news peg about how this state is like basically doing away with sex education and then, you know, highlight how ignorant their population is when it comes to sex education. And like, maybe this isn't the time we should be getting rid of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So something like that, that would uh -huh. be an example of where maybe it's something I just kind of have experienced personally or have a sense of myself uh -huh. that inspires me to do some research. And then I learn about like, oh, this would be a good news story or, or setting to explore this. And when people pitch jokes on ideas in the room, how does that play out? Obviously it depends on, on the pitch idea, but if it, this idea that you were using as an example, would people just say like, and we can do an angle about this? Is it just like more yeah. ideas like that? Yeah. Someone might be like, oh, we actually did a piece about the clitoris, but this could be different if you do it this way, you know, or ah, something okay. might be like, oh yeah, I actually, you know, whatever I'm from Cleveland. And there was a story about a school teacher there who quit because whatever, you know, like people might throw out stuff mm -hmm. they've read or just add ideas to build on. Yeah. When you mentioned someone saying like, oh, we actually did a piece like this. It, it reminded me of you saying that you can't watch every, like because yeah. of the workload, you can't know everything that's going on or see all the stuff. So it makes it even more ludicrous when people who wrote a joke on Twitter claim that some late night writer stole it. Cause it's like, buddy, no, they're they, not they, looking at their own show enough exactly. to know what's going on. They're definitely not looking at some person no one knows on Twitter so they can yeah. find a joke. Like, I'm sorry, bud. I totally. I think that that's always like, a. it's like, that's gonna in every, I remember Harris talking about that when he wrote on Sarah's show, like, it was like, oh, I need to come up with like three new episode ideas. And it was like, okay, just like him wanting to riff with me about like, cause it's like, <laughs> we need to do something that hasn't been done. And like, I remember throwing out some ideas and he, he was one of those people who had this encyclopedic knowledge of comedy right he talked like, about that with mark maron yeah oh really mm -hmm. uh, so so like 
I, I remember I, I pitched him something about Sarah doing an episode where she becomes a mailman or like a male person. And then he was like, they did that on Seinfeld or like, it was like, <laughs> right. You what know, one of those people who has like the comedy staples of like Seinfeld or SNL or Simpsons or something where it's like, yeah, there's a degree to which like those shows are going to have done quote everything. Everything. Yeah. Like just out of fear be like we can't do that is there a way that you can do it differently or like a new version but i think it's easy to get you know you could easily get scared of like oh shit has another late night show done this um yeah well that was essentially when he was talking to Marin about it that's essentially what he said was was that people were like he can't avoid it yeah (laughs) like exactly yeah like what are you gonna spend like your life like googling like essentially every episode of a researcher yeah (laughs) everything has been done it's 2022 we've had a 100 years since vaudeville everything's been done yeah (laughs) and so but like i feel like if the idea i i don't know like if the idea is coming from some like real place in you there's probably mm-hmm. something unique about it. Like right. there, or there's something that you have to bring to it. So like, just like follow that and so, like, yeah, do your due diligence and Google, like has full frontal done a piece on the clitoris or whatever. But like, <laughs> if you don't find anything obvious in your first light Google search, in my opinion, you're free to explore. Or if you do, then like watch it and be like, is this the same as what I'm trying to do? Or am I trying to do something different? Yeah, well, the problem is truly when people are like literally word for word steal something, you know what I mean? Which is doesn't happen often, but like a problem is a word for word thing. Not this idea is similar to this other idea or this joke has the same angle as this other joke. It plays out completely different, but the angle is the same. It's like, guys, come on. They didn't steal your idea. They just happen to come up with an idea that has the same angle so so after you pitch then it's you got to make it you got to go structured so i feel like daily show is very interesting to talk to someone about this part of it because there's a lot of travel i imagine some i mean maybe you don't travel every week but some of the segments are so field that it's in another state Mm -hmm. um such a field imagine crossing state lines yeah (laughs) right uh, la vida loca (laughs) So there's so much scheduling that has to happen and so much planning to get things done. Do I imagine on Daily Show, your ideas that you pitch in a day is it's not what's going on that night. It's a later show, I imagine, right? Right. For our for field piece. Yeah. For the studio writers. Yes, they're pitching stuff for the show that night. But like for our field pieces, we have the luxury of time and the benefit of like, yes. Right, right. And some pieces are what we call evergreen, where it's like, oh, this is a funny story and a cool topic that could play anytime. Because guess what? Climate change is just going to be a problem. Yeah. Where it's like this story about the governor's race in Pennsylvania is something we need to turn around for the show in two weeks or whatever. So it depends on the story. But um, yeah, I would say like I... <laughs> I err on the side of the evergreen pieces and not just because I want more time and I'm lazy. (laughs) No, I just think I tend to like those stories more. That's what I, I kind of am like interested in an issue and I want to explore it rather than like be as reactive to the news cycle as some pieces might be. 
but there's like a benefit to both. So yeah, so it depends on the piece. But like if you had like a normal standard field piece, you'd then be like, okay, the first step now that this has been approved is like booking my subjects. And for me, like you talked about the character stuff, I think different people operate very differently. The casting is like the most important part to me. Like I'm like, are there good characters? And even if that just, that doesn't mean they have to be like so kooky, but like, is this person dynamic and interesting to talk to on camera? Okay. Like, I want to find the best characters to tell the story. Cause for mm-hmm. me, that's like what I always resonate with. Right. And I remember from the pieces is the people in them. So I kind of, it's like a bit of a pet peeve to me when people just like book some expert for a piece that's like maybe their producer has just talked to on the phone and like they, ha- the director hasn't even pre-interviewed themselves. Like, I like, I want to pre-interview every subject. I want to decide if I feel like their energy and their whole vibe is like the right fit for the piece. Cause just if they sound good on paper, that doesn't mean that they're the right person to have. I view it as a theatrical, like it's a theatrical piece. Like you're casting cast it. Right. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. So you, you might be booking an expert, but you are looking at it like you're booking an actor almost. Yeah, like who's the lawyer that we want to play the lawyer in this piece? <laughs> right, lawyer right. Who's kind of like low energy and sleepy, or is it this lawyer who's like giving me great sound bites and has a sense of humor and is kind of like fun vibes? Like we're gonna cast the guy what, who's like, you know, what's gonna be better for a comedy show? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you know, I did this piece for Full Frontal about the the border wall in Texas. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of like that piece. There was so much to read. There was so, you know, you're, you're scanning articles and you're looking for characters in the articles. So you're like, Oh, this woman, Nida Alvarez, they mentioned, she has a really funny quote in this article where she's like threatening to shoot people who walk on her property. She seems Mm -hmm. like a real character. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can get her on the phone. And then your produce your AP or your SP will help you get their contact info and try to hunt this person down. And so like, that piece, I I went so hard to find this woman. She was avoiding our calls. She was like not on email. Like we finally got her because I found another subject who knew her. Like you start oh, talking wow. to people whenever I hear <laughs> people, I ask them at the end, like, is there anyone else you think would be great to talk to about this? Because the people embedded in the topic are always going to have the best info on like who I should talk to. So I just asked them. And one of these other women I spoke with knew Nida and she's like, let me talk to her and see if she'll talk to you, you know? And then like, long story short, you know, this piece, there's two women in it who are just the most fiery, badass Texas women ever. They're like talking about how one of them in the piece says like, she follows the rules of the three F's. If you're not feeding me, fucking me or financing me, I don't have to listen to you. I'm like, these are the It's like, these are the women I want in my piece. You know what I mean? Right, I don't want just right. like a boring homeowner who happens to have a house along the border wall where they're trying to build. I want these women who are like, I'll shoot your ass if you try to build this wall in my backyard. You know, so sometimes it takes extra work to find those people. But to me, that's like what makes the pieces, you know, right. Sick. It makes it yeah. worth it. Yeah. Because it is comedy. It is a comedy show. I know a lot of people are going to it for news, but they really can't look at every aspect of it the way they would look at a news program because a news, yeah. like your local news is really just trying to get the information. They want someone who can talk quickly and give good sound bites, but they don't, they're not looking for a character who's going to be entertaining. 
Mm-hmm, but a comedy mm-hmm. show needs someone who's a character who's entertaining. So it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so funny because like after that piece went up on YouTube, like night, the two women in it were messaging me like people are proposing marriage to us in the comments. Like, you know, <laughs> in the comments, people are reacting to them, you know, because <laughs> right. like and that always is like that makes the story stick with you more when you're like, oh, I remember this specific woman whose house was going to be taken away from her so they could build the wall. And I remember because she had a loaded pistol on her table, you know. Well, there it is. Thanks so much for being yeah, on the podcast. I'm so glad to end with loaded pistol. On okay. <laughs> I did not have to get gun violence. Okay. No guns, please. <laughs> All of them. Yes, uh, please. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Uh, this was a lot of fun for me, too. I hope you enjoyed that. Please check out her documentary, Still Standing, which you can find on the New Yorker's YouTube channel. You can also find her on YouTube and on Twitter at Eliza Zeff. Also go to ElizabethMcDonough.com to find out more about her and what she's got going on. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ThereItIsPod. And follow me on Twitter at JasonFarJokes and Instagram at JasonFarPicks. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info, links to all the things in bio. We have a Christmas episode coming up next week. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 